We discussed the, the uh, intention of the flood, why Hashem chose specifically to destroy the world in the time of Noah for the flood. We said that the flood represents the purification process, you know, that water purifies, just like the mikvah, and Hashem was purifying the world through the flood in order that we can have a better world, right, which is what happened afterwards, which is why Noah is called Noah and called the waters of God, according to Nedrish, because he brought peace above and peace below. Now the angels stop complaining to God constantly. How could you have created a people like this? Look how they're behaving. And he brought peace below because now we know that Hashem is never going to destroy the world again with a flood. And we said on a deeper level, he brought peace to the world because now the world had been purified. And there was a peaceful spirit that was able to rest upon the land. And we went from there to discussing the idea of Mayim Rabim in our own lives. Obviously, we don't have um, you know, floods that are destroying the world today, although you know, there are some crazy you know, hurricanes and stuff that do happen. Um, but the flood water is represented by the challenges of our day-to-day -day life that we face. And we're trying to understand how we can call these challenges may not, right? Waters of peace, waters of rest. And so we started to speak about what does Shiabud mean, right? That's the term that's used, that uh, Avram shows Shiabud, Neged Geenon, and that Shiabud is what's represented by these challenging waters. Shiabud literally means slavery, but we said it does not mean that we have a king above us, right? That we're living in a foreign nation, living in a foreign land, having others tell us what to do, but rather it means that we are, so to speak, enslaved to making and living into the challenges that we're faced with in our day-to-day -day lives. And the argument of the minor is going to be that our Judaism and that our soul is going to reach a level, specifically by confronting challenges, that it could never have reached it if, if it had not. Right? As we know, the soul up above is completely at peace all the time. It does not face any challenges, does not face any conflict or friction whatsoever in its service of God and its desire to be one with God up above, right? There it's basking in the rays of the Shekhinah. But when it comes down here, it's facing challenge after challenge after challenge. And the Mimer is going to explain to us that this actually causes an elevation, not only in the world around us, but in our soul, and it allows our soul to reach a level that it could not have reached if it had not been confronted with these challenges. And that's what we're going to have to understand today, um, how that works. It sounds all nice, but how does it work? Um, I'll start off with a, with a, a bit of a controversial story, but um, just to kind of take us into, into this next step. Um, have you guys heard of Rabbi Levitz Makhav Student of the Magid. He was a Rebbe, and he had a student who once came to him, and this, this student, this Hasid of his, was very poor. He struggled every year to make a living. And he came to him, and he said, Rebbe, you have some connections up there, right? You, you are able to communicate up on high. And can you just arrange for me, please, that this year, I know that every Rosh Hashanah has decided how much money I'm going to make for the whole year. Everyone's livelihood is decided for that year on the day of Rosh Hashanah. Can you arrange that I should get the entire amount in one lump sum at the beginning of the year? And I'll even take a cut from last year in order that I should just know the money's gonna be there so that I don't have to worry about it, so that I can sit and learn Torah. 
and serve God in the proper way instead of chasing money for the whole year. So he wasn't asking to be rich. He was just asking that it should all be in front of him at one time so that he doesn't have to worry about, about getting it. And Rabbi Yitzchak responded to him and said, who says that it's your Torah that God wants? Maybe it's the struggle that he wants. And it's not to say that God is being mean. Right? It's not to say that God is there just to like play with us. Good morning. But rather our Judaism, when, when our Judaism is faced with conflict, right, and friction, and we overcome that, and we overcome the struggles, it becomes a whole new level of meaningful, right? And this is a theme that we discussed throughout the whole year. It comes up again and again, the idea that to truly have something and own something as your own, you have to earn it. And it's the idea that, that when we struggle in this world, our soul, our Yiddishkeit, and our relationship with Hashem takes on a completely different meaning and a completely different level. Um, within that, so you know, we're confronted with challenges. Within that, it doesn't discuss it explicitly in this manner, but it's interesting, that Hasidus divides challenges into two categories. There's a category of a challenge that's called Birurim. Birurim means refinement, where we go out into the world and we want to serve God, but then the physical. Birurim bays yod reish. You write it on the board. And that means refinement. And it's when we go out into the world, we want to serve God, and yet the physical world around us challenges us in our pursuit of serving God. For example, somebody wants to send their kid to a Jewish school, right? And I know in America, in Israel, it's free. But in America, Jewish school is very, very expensive. Maybe it's free in England. England. In England, it's free to all Jewish schools? Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. That's very cool. I went to Jewish school. That's very cool. All you do is pay for the Kodesh. So you, they give a suggested donation towards the Kodesh, but everything else is free. That's very, that's very impressive. In America, that's not the case in most places. And, um, and so, you know, I want to send my kid to a Jewish school because I want to be a Jew and I want to raise my children as Jews. And that's like the basics we can do, right? It's very, very expensive and I can't afford it. So now there's, there's this challenge, right? There's, there's what I want in my service of Hashem. And there's what Hashem wants from me and from my family. And then there's the physical world saying, wait, 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 I'm going to make this hard for you. So what do we have to do? We have to sit down and make a plan, right? Take on another job or ask for a, a what's it called? Raise. A, a raise or a scholarship or fundraise, you know, or all, all of them together. Um, we have to do our work and confront the world and work with the world so that we can serve Hashem. So that's called that's called a challenge. That's called Birurim, where the world gets in our way of serving God. We have to sit down, confront the challenge, overcome the challenge, and make the two work together. And suddenly now, you know, the extra hours you're putting in at work to send your kids to school, the pen and the coffee and the colleague and the desk, and every single aspect and area of your work is to send your child to a Jewish school, it becomes holy, becomes elevated, and we reveal the sparks that are hidden and concealed within all of these areas of our life that would never have been revealed if we weren't confronted with this challenge. And obviously that's just one example. None of us are sending kids to school um, yet. With Marissa Shen, it should be easy. Uh, it's, a, it's, a big, it's a big topic that always comes up in my family because my great-grandfather, Yossel Weinberg, his job, he was an emissary of the Rebbe. He would travel throughout the entire world to raise money for Chinuch. 
We would raise money for yeshivot um, so that people can afford to send their kids to school. And now that doesn't exist anymore. It, does, it doesn't exist, and education is very expensive. Anyway, it's just a topic that comes up a lot. Like, you know, it's always like, why isn't someone raising money? It's like, well, you go and raise the money. Why should you know? Um, but that, that, was his, that was his actually, his life's work, uh, one of his life's work. Um, but we can all think for ourselves what that looks like. The difference between this level of challenge, which is called Bjorn, and the next one, which is called Nisayon. Have you guys heard the term Nisayon? <coughs> Nisayon means a challenge. Nisayon means a test. Can you spell that too? Sure. And it's used in the context very much with, um, with Avraham, that he got 10 tests. You know the 10 tests of Avraham? Yeah. So they're called Nisayonot. They're looking Nisa as Avraham, and Hashem tested Avraham. And this level of a test, because this explains, is not a challenge, but it's an impossibility. So, an example, the same thing with school, yeah? Uh, how many years ago was the Soviet Union? 70, 80 years ago? Say 80, 80 years ago? When it is? Soviet Union? Soviet Union. Right, but like when, like, oh. the. Our times? It was seven. That's when it fell. Um, it's been there for ages, though. Okay, let's say 50 years ago. I'm so bad with like the history and the. 50 years ago, if you're living in Russia and you want to send your kid to a Jewish school, first of all, there's no such thing as a Jewish school. Secondly, the authorities are coming and knocking on your door and saying, if you don't send your kid to the non-Jewish school, you and your wife are going to go to Siberia. Your kids are going to be taken away from you, put into a different moment and school anyway. Now. That's not Burin. That's not a challenge like, oh, it's expensive for me to send my kids to school. That's an impossibility. That's just, what are, you, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do there, right? And the answer is, well, what did Chabad do? Messiris Nefesh. They didn't send the kids to school. And, or they sent the kids to underground schools, which endangered their children's lives, their own lives, families' lives. And this is an example of something called a Nisayon. That's a test. That's impossible to overcome. There's no light there. There's no, there's no aspect of the physical world that needs to be illuminated and you just have to go and find it. It's like a brick wall. The, there's a story um, when the Friedrich Rebbe, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, was 15, his father, the fourth Lubavitcher Rebbe, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, sorry, the Rebbe Rashab, took him, um, took him to his father, Rebbe Marash's um, grave, to the Ohel. And they had like a whole, I guess, well, like initiation. It's a whole story where he basically initiated his son into public service at the age of 15. The Friedrich Rebbe never had a childhood. And at the end of it, he said to him that public, ser like, public service is Messiris Nefesh. And he said, what does that mean? Imagine you have a brick wall in front of you. You have a wall in front of you. There's no way over and there's no way under. What do you do? He told his son, you don't pound your arm, you don't pound your leg, you pound your head until you break the wall. And he was basically telling his son, and this was the whole era of the Friedrich Rebbe's Messias, of his rulership of Messias Nefesh, that you don't try, go, you know, there's no way over, there's no way under, you pound your head into the wall until you make a hole. And the Friedrich Rebbe told his Hasidim that they should not send their kids to the non-Jewish schools. And what did that mean? You think that the Friedrich Rebbe was naive? Like, people were killed for that. His Hasidim were killed. My great-great-grandfather, um, Elchanan Shigalov, he, uh, 
he refused, he was in Mohel, which was illegal, and he refused to send his kids to Jewish school. And he was taken away one day, and he was killed. He was taken to Siberia, he was killed. They didn't know what happened to him for over 20 years, but in the records say three months later he was shot. And my great-great-grandmother had to raise six children by herself with no job, and she refused to send them all to, to, to schools, which meant that they got, that they lost their house, they got kicked out of their house in the snow. And um, what are you supposed to tell people like that? that that's, not, that's not like a challenge, that's an Isayon, that's a test that's completely impossible to overcome. And the only way out of it is through it. The only way out of it is through it. And if we look at um, those who survived Soviet Russia as religious Jews, it was those who, who were, were crazy, right? Who went right through it. The misnagdoms, there were many misnagdoms who lived in Russia and their approach was, that's crazy, I'm gonna send my kids to school and then they're gonna come home and I'm gonna teach them the proper way. But what ended up happening? Assimilation on a level that we, we can't even, can't even um, imagine. So anyway, this is just a side point that there's two, there's, two, there's two levels here when we're speaking about tests. There's a test, which this mimer is, I, I would say, primarily dealing with the idea of the Orient where we go out into the world and there's a struggle. There's a, there's a word I'm looking for that I'm not finding. An inconsistency, I guess, where the world gets in our way of serving Hashem, which is what we want to do. And we have to struggle to make the two work together because we have to, right? You want to send your kid to a Jewish school, you can't just say, well, I don't care about money, I'm above money. No one's, they're not gonna take you into the school. So you have to make these two things work together. And when we do that, our environment gets elevated and our soul gets elevated. Because again, the most meaningful thing that you can have is something that you've actually worked for, right? And that's, that's the process that our soul is going through by simply existing in this world. Then there's the whole idea of Nisayon, um, where you know, that's more discussed with Akedah Yitzchak story of, of Yitzchak and, and, and Abraham's 10 tests, which were 10 impossible tests. Every single one was impossible. It wasn't like there was a way around it. There wasn't any logic to it. And so the only way is through. And when we do that, we're not even affecting a change in the world because the world that's challenging us is so black. The godliness there is so concealed that the only change that's really happening is within ourselves. Um, within ourselves when we overcome those challenges. So that was just a, a side thing about these two levels. Um, now let's finish part one inside and see, and then when we get into part two, we're going to see the process of what happens when a soul comes down to the world, confronts challenges, and then gets an elevation. How does that work? Okay. So any questions or comments before we go inside? No? Okay. So we're on page 12, and we are at the bottom, as our sages say, second last paragraph from the bottom. <coughs> And until now, we said that the soul, through engaging with the mind, rather the many waters, challenging waters, gets an elevation. And it says, Marazal, as our sages say, achat, it is preferable, it is more beautiful, one moment, the tshuva of teshuva, umasim tovim, and good deeds, for olam hazeh in this world, we call chaye ha'olam haba from all of the life of the world to come. Have you guys heard this quote before? Yeah. This quote comes up again and again in Hasidus, and this is the point, that when we come down specifically into this world and we confront the challenges of this world, we are reaching God in a way that we can never reach him, even, even in the highest spiritual levels up above. 
Why? Lefi, this is because Shehu Bechinat Kiyitran Ha'ar Mitoch Achoshet Zafra. This is the example that's brought also many times in Chassidus of the advantage of light that comes from darkness specifically. Shehu Bechinat Iskafia, this is brought about through Iskafia, which means to bend Sitra Achra, the other side, to bend the physicality around us, the reality around us that conceals God, the ishapcha, and to over and to overturn it, to transform the darkness into light. So when we specifically confront the darkness, we extract the light that exists within it, the light that we're extracting, the God that we're meeting, is the deepest truth that we can ever reach. Not only that we can reach, but that our soul can ever reach. Even comparing what our soul can reach and experience in the upper worlds. And now in part two, we're going to explain what that looks like. So, when a person deals and spends his whole day with physical matters, with the challenges of making a living, which is called darkness, challenges are compared to darkness, because just as darkness conceals the light of Hashem, Challenges conceal the light of Hashem or get in our way of serving Hashem, so to speak. And so what's he dealing with all day? He's dealing with darkness. He's dealing with concealed aspects of godliness. He's grappling with the physical world around him. And then, once he's done that, and afterwards, he contemplates the tefillah in prayer, how there is not even one blade of grass down here, which does not have a mazal up above, which is telling it to grow. Have you had this idea before that every single physical thing down here has a mazal up above that's watching over it, that's giving it for, for plants the power to grow and for whatever it is the power to stay alive. And what the altar is going to get into now is a, is a bit of a, a meditation that a person gets into when they pray. So when a person goes out into his day, and he confronts the physical world, and then despite the fact that he's faced with challenge after challenge and darkness throughout his life, he takes time to remember the truth, which is Hashem, and to cultivate a personal, meaningful relationship with Hashem through his prayer, which is what prayer is all about. And he contemplates in that prayer about how every single physical thing that exists is watched over by something up above, which is watch over something even higher and higher, that there's a hierarchy all the way up to what's called Malchut of Atsilut, as we're going to see. And he contemplates on this and he realizes just how far he is away from Hashem, and he yearns and he works towards a relationship with Hashem. When a person does that, despite the challenges he faced throughout his day, that's where he meets God. And that's where his soul meets God. So it's going to bring now a little bit of a, of a meditation of what a person thinks and what conclusions he reaches when he dies. So first of all, that there's no blade of grass below. It doesn't have a mazal from above. What does mazal translate Mazal means, let's say it in English. Um, <coughs> didn't you say in the summer program, it's like, what was it? you said something like, like superstitious thing, like something good looking upon you. You said something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, so there's two. The there's two ideas we can. There's there's somebody's mazal, right? Um, and then there's the mazal. It's. I don't know why it's like running away from me. How would you say it? 
it's a certain level of low angel. That's basically what a mazal is. It's a very low level of angel that's been like put in charge of a certain physical element in the world. <coughs> I'm trying to think what the English word would be though. I don't know. To check. Because they always compare the kochavim and the mazalot, the stars and the mazalot. It's like, it's a spiritual thing that's very close to physicality. Um, but I'll have to check for you how to, how to like. Is it like one of like the closest, like, spiritual, like, being, like, entities almost? That it's can the, be physical? It's the one that's closest to the physical world. It's like directly in touch with the physical world. And they're found usually in the spiritual, in the spiritual Asiya. Um, but I don't know how we would call it in English. I have to check. Thank you. Sure. So it says, Shehema Mazalot. And here it doesn't even help us with the translation. It calls it Mazalot. <laughs> Thank you very much. Shehema um, Mashpim, which draw down, Chayut, life, Kol Olam Hazet, all this world. As is written, that the sweetness comes through the sun and from the plants it comes from the moon. So here it's explaining how the mazalot are the sun and the moon. It says, the kochavim and the mazalot. Maybe it's right, the sun and the moon. Here it's saying that it's coming through the sun and the moon. Kochavim is stars, right? So it's like the sun and the mazalot. So I guess the sun, moon, and stars. Um, let me check that for you. The sun and the moon, according to Hasidus, have a unique um, spiritual status. That's not even though you know we've actually gone to the moon and we can see the sun and their physical things. They have an infinity infused in them that other that other physical things on don't have. Um, and I brought this up before, but. The idea in Hasidus is that the sun never ages and it's not limited by time um, as opposed to every other physical thing because Hashem is constantly giving it the ability to defy time. Um, so here it looks like it's saying that the sun and the moon give life, which we know uh, scientifically as well, give life to the lower physical things around us. Um, I've understood Mazalot to be something else, so I'm going to check that. Um, I'm going to check that, but you can trust the minor here. You can trust this explanation for now. So where do the mazalot receive their spiritual life from? From what's called the 70 ministers. And these 70 ministers are spiritual ministers which are in charge of the 70 nations, which give life to the 70 nations of the world. And they are on a higher level than the mazalot. And the officers, they receive from the remnants of the Ophanim. Ophanim are the lowest level of angel. Shomrei is like their waist. This is just explaining to us that there's a hierarchy here. The hey makabim ma'amalachim. And these Ophanim get from malachim. Malachim are a high level of angels. The gavoa male gavoa higher and higher. A shakula makablim to the point that everyone receives their life force, their energy, and their sustenance. Mekhinat malchusa yisbarak from Hashem's malchus. Malchus is the lowest sephira. It's a light of Hashem that receives from all of the spirits above it and translate that life, that energy, and that life force into turning, into bringing this world into being in a physical way. So what's the point here? The point that the Altar is making is that when we pray and we contemplate on this hierarchy of what's going on, just to bring our world about, where does all of this come from? Just from one ray of Hashem, from our foot. 
From one ray, from one light of Hashem comes this entire world in existence and reality as we know it. Which can then help us appreciate just how far we are away from Hashem and just how great Hashem really is. As we say every day in Ashrei from Tehillim, Malchutcha Malchut that your kingship creates all of the worlds. So everything that we know comes from a ray, a light, a drop, so to speak, of Hashem. And it creates the worlds, literally from nothing into something, from something, something from nothing. And all of this power and energy comes from one ray. There's only one ray of Hashem's light. If we compare it to his essence, that's Mosa and his truth. Because Hashem, the truth about Hashem is that he's literally infinite. Haya, Hove, the Yiyah, he was, he is, and he will be. And he has never changed. As it says, You are the same from before you created the world. And you are the same as after you created the world. So this is a contemplation that we should be thinking about and governing. And that's why when we pray, there's so many prayers that speak about the physical world around us. The, the snow and the mountains, right, and all the Hanukkahs. We're thinking about this whole world that we know that we appreciate and what we see is just a drop compared to the, the spiritual um, beings that are in charge of that, which are just a drop compared to the spiritual beings which are in charge of that, which come from a ray of Hashem from Malthus. And what's it supposed to bring a person to feel? To feel a yearning and a desire to be close to Hashem. <coughs> After somebody contemplates on everything that we just discussed before on this contemplation, the Omekadat very deeply, Titorer his soul will awaken ava with a love, a chuka, and a yearning, the floor, a great yearning, karish ve'esh, like a burning fire, natset mitocha choshech, to leave behind the darkness, ve'helem hagash mi'azeh, and this physical concealment that we find ourselves in, v'rak ledavka v'ayit barach, and only to cleave to Hashem. This causes a person to not get distracted by Hashem's light, and desire and yearn for the truth. And that's the downside of Gan Eden. And that's the downside of the soul's experience up on high. What's the downside? The light is the downside. Because as we mentioned yesterday, Gavib uh, asked a question and I said, light equals revelation equals limitation. The moment we're speaking about Hashem's light, we're not speaking about the truth of Hashem. We're speaking about Hashem as he limits himself into a form that can be revealed to others. But when we are confronting the darkness around us, we can see the truth for what it is. We want to leave the darkness, but we, now that we're in the darkness, we say, wait, I want to leave the darkness and go back into the light. I want to leave the darkness and go to you. I want you. I don't want your light. I don't want your darkness, that's for sure. I want you. And we can only get to that place. We can only reach that true desire, which is, what, which is uh, what's called in uh, Zohar, to cleave to the to, to hug the king himself, idea. to actually hug Hashem himself, to be close to Hashem, we can only reach that by first confronting the darkness. Um, so I'm really confused about the idea of light and gracious because so gracious. Yeah. So on day, day one, Hashem creates light. It's not sunlight. It's 
it's just putting his light into the world? Right. right. It's not sunlight. It's not the light that we know of. That was on the third day, right? Uh, sun, moon, and stars was on the fourth day. Um, fourth day. But so then he created, but what weren't, weren't Adam and Chava, like, in, could they see, like, it was their light they could see in the garden? They were created after the fourth day. Oh, that's They nice. were created last. So, so they had sunlight. Yeah, they okay. had everything. Hashem created the world ready for man. Man was the right. last thing that was created. Okay. But yeah. there is a difference between the light from the sun and the light that was created on the first day. It says that the light that was created on the first day was actually concealed. It was too good. Right. And Hashem put it aside, and that's the right. light of Mashiach. Okay. So that's not speaking about physical light, but more And it was concealed in the tree of life. Yes. That's, it, there are sources that it was concealed in the tree of life. There are some sources that say it was concealed... It, it, it's so powerful that it's beyond revelation that's actually right here, but we just don't see it. Okay. So, but yeah, there is, there is an opinion that it's in the tree of life. Okay. Um, I have heard that before. Okay. Thank you. So when we speak about light, any sort of light, even this tremendous, powerful light, we are speaking about contraction, right? We are speaking about limitation. And when a Jew comes down here and he's completely immersed in darkness, right? He's confronting challenges throughout his day, which we said are compared to darkness, because the truth of Hashem is just really hidden. And despite the fact that, not, it's not despite the fact that he is confronting darkness, that he prays, because he's surrounded by darkness the whole day, he appreciates that there's, he, he has a yearning and a desire for the ultimate truth. And he doesn't get distracted and dazzled by the light. Does that make sense? Yeah. Can I say myself just to make sure I understand? So it's like if we were able to see uh, um, like Hashem's light, we'd be distracted by it, and we wouldn't be able to comprehend that it was concealed, that Hashem was concealed. But if we were in the darkness, we understand that Hashem is concealed, and so we do the work to reveal. Is that? I think so. I think so. Um, I'll, say it, I'll say it a little bit differently. When we have light we get complacent, right? Because we feel like we know God, right? That's what the soul feels like up on high. It doesn't, have a, it doesn't have any friction, so there's no yearning, right? And the most powerful way to actually have something is to desire, right? There's almost like an anticlimax when you get the thing you want, right? Because it's the power there is in the want. That want, that lack, is not felt up above. It specifically felt that you come down here and you confront the darkness and you face the challenges that we truly want Hashem. But then when we want Hashem, we want Hashem. We don't want His light, right? We want Hashem Himself. And we come to this understanding through prayer where we try to really cultivate a meaningful relationship with Hashem. We get to that place by thinking about all of the light that Hashem brings into the world and, and then coming to the conclusion that as much light as there is and as, as powerful and beautiful and satisfying as the light is, it's not Hashem himself. It's not the ultimate truth. So we get a yearning for the ultimate truth specifically by being in the darkness. And it says here, as it says in Tehillim, Nili bashaman who do I have in the heavens? The It's you that I desire. This is what King David said. What do I have in the heavens? The heavens represents the spiritual world, right? The light that we're talking about. What do I have in the heavens? I want you. I don't want anything else but you. 
a person can get to a place specifically by confronting challenges where he doesn't desire at all not the lower level of Ganeidin, not the higher level of Ganeidin. He understands that these are just rays of Hashem, these are just lights of Hashem. As it says, what do the tzaddikim, what do the righteous do in heaven? They sit and they enjoy from the rays of the shtina. We are not satisfied with that. Rather, ki im, rather, the dafka boyus brach, we want to cleave to Hashem. Likalel b'chinat musa, we want to be included in his essence, that's musa yisbarach, and in his essence. I never know how to translate the difference between makus and atzmos. Source and essence, maybe, I don't know. The Nikra Bazar Kodesh, and this is what's called in the Zohar Lishtava Begufa Demalk. It's become absorbed in the body, in the essence of the king. So when someone is really involved in something, he forgets about himself. He loses himself. Depending on how great the thing he is involved in, the greater he will lose himself. For example, someone involved in learning can forget about himself to a certain extent, but not as much as when he is fully involved in dancing at his best friend's wedding, where he totally forgets himself and acts silly because he only experiences what is happening now, not his own personality and limitations. More than this, a soldier in battle forgets about himself completely to the point that he can even risk his own life, bless you, or willingly give up his own life because he experiences the battle and dedication to the cause more than his own life itself. More than this, the divine soul sees the truth that Hashem is really the only true existence of everything and there is no independent existence at all. The animal soul and the human intellect, however, don't see it that way. They firmly believe in their own independent existence as being the true reality. When a Jew taps into his divine soul deeply enough through contemplation of Hashem's greatness, he's able to be conscious of his divine soul's belief that there's nothing besides Hashem. After consciously recognizing that enough times, he will begin to seriously desire to truly experience reality as his divine soul sees it, that we are just part of Hashem, there's nothing separate from him at all. And this yearning is called a desire to become absorbed in the essence of the king, meaning experience how we are part of Hashem himself. There's a quote of the Baal Shem Tov, I'm not remembering exactly how it goes, is if, if, only, if only we would, if only we would have Hashem, only we would want Hashem when we have him, as we have him when we want him, something like that. I have to check exactly, but it's the idea that it's in the yearning, it's in the thirst, and it's in the drive and desire for Hashem himself that we actually meet Hashem. It's not in the satisfaction of getting a little bit of Hashem. And we really can get that thirst and that desire and that appreciation that all of this is just a facade and that the truth is Hashem and we don't want his life, but we want him. We can only get that by confronting the limitations of this world and by confronting and overturning the darkness. And <coughs> we'll explain tomorrow, excuse me, that this is called teshuva. Not teshuva in the context of, of returning from sin, but in the context of returning to the truth of who we really are, which is what our soul really wants and what our soul really desires. So we're going to discuss that. Um, we're going to discuss that tomorrow. You're here. We're right here. Okay.